Hello and welcome to episode 157 of the Good Good Golf Podcast. Rod Murray in the chair and still recovering, frankly, from the maths and golf lesson we got last week from special guest Kevin Moore. If you didn't listen to that episode, I do recommend that you go and do so. Lots of good feedback about that on Twitter, I thought. Now, just before we get into introductions today, I've got a bit of a favour slash announcement. As some of you know, I've been helping Azayim Wasegi and he's a Freya Golf Academy in Uganda. What are you throwing your hands up about? Oh, you no. can complain later. Go ahead. Wasn't in the pre-show meeting. Oh, oh no. That's <laughs> what, Logue arriving late? <laughs> Is that now called a meeting? I've been helping Isaiah Mosegi and he's a Freya Golf Academy in Uganda. They've been putting together a podcast by and for the kids there. They've been doing a terrific job, particularly given the lack of computer resources they have to work with. Now, I've got a computer here at the studio that I don't use anymore. I plan to send to Uganda. Anybody want to take a stab at what it would cost to send a computer to Uganda roughly? Oh, I've sent stuff to Kenya and it's never cheap. No, it's not cheap. About five to six hundred bucks, okay. it looks like. So I've got a brother going to Kenya this month. He can carry it and it's closer. How do you get and then what once it's at Kenya we'll work out how to get it to Uganda? Yeah, but it's closer. <laughs> it is closer. There's no question about <laughs> it's that. It's inching towards there. It's inching that's right. By the time they get it, yeah. <laughs> it might still be somewhat uh, current. So, look, that's a bit beyond the scope of the Sydney Podcast Studios group of companies at the moment. So, last week, we set up a Patreon for the Kids Golf Podcast. That's what it's called. If anyone's interested to keen and get on board and contribute regularly, you can do that. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. If I think you can go and sign up, make a one-off, and then cancel. It's a bit of rigmarole if you just want to give a one-off. If you want to give a one-off donation, we also started a buymeacoffee.com account, buymeacoffee.com forward slash kidsgolfpodcast. I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. If you want to contribute but not that way and you want to talk about doing something different, feel free to send me a DM on Twitter. We can chat off air, so to speak. But uh, it's a good project, and I'd love to see it keep going, but they have got a bit of a problem with computers there at the moment. So let's see if we can get that organised. Just, just as well, that was a good cause because, you know, that was completely... What did you think I was going to promote a brothel or something? <laughs> I haven't gone off and signed oh a goodness. sponsorship deal like you guys have outside of the... Oh, my goodness. You know. <laughs> right. To today's episode... Get, get behind that. <laughs> get, get behind what, Rod? <laughs> which, which one, sorry? Go, go with option A. Let's yeah, go option with, a. Uh, with... It's a very good cause and, Rod, you do some really great work in that, that space as well. I, honestly, they do some great... Zaya... Don't Almost so, makes you believe in God. Don't be so humble. He's a good person, yeah. a really good person. I don't like this humble stuff. Yeah. Oh, shut up. Listen, this is going to be a solo podcast if you blokes don't. don't uh, no one knows who fly. we are yet because you're still rambling on. To but. today's episode, and after what was a brilliant chat with Kevin last week, we're shifting gears away from the intriguing maths discussion. We're going to go a full 180 degrees to writing. Richard Pennell from the Pitchmarks Substack and author of a new book, Grassroots will be joining us shortly to talk about his much-deserved rise in the world of golf writing. He'll be along in just a moment, but first, close at home, in studio with me is Adrian Logue. Logue, we had Richard on early last year when he was a nobody. Look at him now. Does it give us hope for us all? We've created a monster. (laughs) Maybe. Maybe. We We had a challenge for him to continue writing and slow his pace. And slow he down. Just to slow his roll a little bit. And he's, he did that for a while. He actually went very quiet for a while. But, and uh, now we know why. He's writing a lot he's more writing a, uh, and, a book. Uh, yeah. Also in studio, no doubt keen, as I am, to talk all things golf, writing with Richard. Jimmy Emanuel, somewhat fluid title these days. Freelance, gun for hire, mercenary. What's What are we going with? Yeah, whatever. Just money, I'll do it. <laughs> Pretty simple. <laughs> Give me money and I'll Give do it. Give me money and I'll do it. Got a business prop- option B to talk to you about a bit later. Okay. And... <laughs> Enough out of us. Let's get into today's show. As I mentioned, Richard Pennell emerged almost from nowhere during the COVID lockdowns with his Pitchmarks blog, now Substack, and all of that has morphed into a book called Grassroots. This is Richard's second appearance on Good Good after we had him on in February last year. Richard, welcome. Given you were nothing when we found you, 
back in 2022. I'm sure you'd like to take a few minutes just to say thank you to kick off. <laughs> Oh, thank you, Jen. <laughs> I'm so grateful. Literally the least we could do, Richard, the very um, least we could do. Yeah, I, you know, I, I sort of, I didn't know what to say when you were saying he was nothing when we had him on last year. I, I, you can't quite see because I've angled the monitor. I'm still nothing, but there's a massive pile of books behind <laughs> me. So, right. um, Nothing with apologies. In all honesty, Richard, quite the journey that you've been on professionally and somewhat emotionally. We had you on last year. You told us that writing had always been something in the back of your mind that you'd like to do, but you had life to do. You had kids and a job and all of that treadmill stuff Mm. that we talk about and COVID kind of changed it all. I can't imagine even when we spoke to you then, you could have envisaged being here now. Uh, No. No, I don't think so. It's been weird. And like, you know, talking to you guys – February last year, um, yeah, I didn't know where it was going. I didn't have a job at all at that point. I've now got a part-time job, which is enabling me to carry on doing this stuff and, and writing about golf and exploring different avenues. And yeah, I, you know, it was the maddest um, feeling having a pallet of books delivered on my drive two months ago because I, I had always dreamt of writing a book. And uh, yeah, your encouragement was important there, actually. I know you won't enjoy me saying that, but uh, it was. Well, and um, yeah, got, I can't believe it. You've now got a stack of books in your lounge that you have to move, so you can yeah, thank us yeah, later. Yeah, your yeah. opinion might change on that as we go on. In fact, you had a book in the bottom drawer that you didn't mention when we spoke to you already, did you not? Uh, yeah, I'm glad you asked about that. Yeah, so it's not in the bottom drawer; it's still in a drawer. But um, yeah, that was um, so. Grant Books have published Grassroots, and Rod, hopefully you've seen yours by now. It's uh, made its way across the the other side of the world. Um, And I pitched to them saying, I've got this thing. I don't know if it's any good, and I still don't really. Um, But I I didn't actually send the proof of it to the publisher. I sent some examples of the stymied articles that are now pitchmarked. And um, it was only very recently after we'd been through this whole creating the the booklets um you know on your bookshelf or in the local charity shop depending how you got on with it it was only at the end of that sort of process that i realized i'd never actually sent him the thing i meant to send him in the first place so um yeah it's still in a drawer um i and i yeah i, I think i'm gonna well i'm gonna try and persuade either grant books or anyone else to publish it because um uh, i've sort of gained a bit of confidence from this Rightly or wrongly, so. Well, rightly, I think yeah. we'd all agree. You uh, did tell me that. I think it was, I think you told me after the pod had finished in no uncertain terms and in terms that we couldn't repeat here anyway <laughs> to, to get on with it. So, uh, but, you know, 18 months later, I'm, I'm just about getting there, I think. No, it's actually, it's pretty quick in publishing terms. <laughs> 18 months to, people spend a lifetime trying to get a book published and never sort of get there. Talk to us about the writing thing, Richard. I'm intrigued by this. I write kind of for a living or have done for much of my career as a daily newspaper hack and then moving into the goal space. I find it hard work and I don't particularly enjoy it. You're the opposite, aren't you? You, you actually do enjoy it. It's an illness. Yeah, yeah, I do. I really enjoy it. And um, I I drift away from it and sometimes won't write anything for a couple of days. And then when I get back to it, I really, really enjoy it. Um, But I've I've never been that strong a planner as my professional career would probably um, flesh out. Um, And so 
the the stuff that seems to work i don't i don't plan particularly well i don't work terribly well with structures i just kind of have an idea and see where it goes so uh i i i feel like it's constantly in danger of deserting me whatever you know is in there um if that makes sense absolutely it makes sense we yeah. need to start a support group for richard and tony webeck who like writing so yeah mm. webeck's the same he told me once how much he enjoys writing i was staggered i nearly fell off my chair i've like, spoken to him since it's a, <laughs> so much puts us to shame like exactly I, right I, I i don't hate what i do but <laughs> i'm not, not putting my hand up for a whole lot is, more either. he is just he's at it non-stop and wants more I always go with the Dorothy Parker quote that uh, I hate writing, but I like having written. Ah, Huggy uses that too. Yeah. He's the same kind of thing. Yeah, That's... I've got to tell you, I could live with the having without the having written as well. Really, if I didn't have to write, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I, I do find it very satisfying. To but what would people create? comment on the internet about if you weren't writing? You know? uh, they don't always comment. I went looking yesterday actually. If I was talking to somebody, and they were saying, you know, "How do you go with the column? Do you get much hate mail?" I was like, "Well, have I got a story <laughs> for you?" And I couldn't find that particular. I think it was a Phoenix column where we that got was. Some, some really good. Who was the bloke that said, he, "Imagine, he put, imagine having have a beer with this sad sack"? Yeah, <laughs> or something similar to that was his name. <laughs> Quickly on that, do you remember the day that you, Brendan James, and I compared the best things we've been called on the internet? Oh, was- I do not. Who won? <laughs> I think I did because I, I referenced women's golf and live golf in one tweet. We so are, you know, asking for trouble. <laughs> yeah, asking for trouble. Uh, where did it come from for you, Richard? This sort of need or desire to write. What was you? You don't have a background in that field, do you? You weren't a journal or lots of journals have got a book in the bottom drawer that's no. never going to get finished. No. No, um, I think it was love of books when I was a teenager, just kind of, um, you know, uh, what you like when you're 15, 16, 18, you're sort of dreamy and you think the world's your oyster. And uh, I, I really enjoyed the stuff I was reading at that time. Um, and some of those books I still reread regularly. Um, a bit of, I don't know, a bit of golf, a bit of philosophy stuff. Um, I just really enjoyed where books could take you. They just kind of open up um different worlds of imagination and stuff. And, uh, yeah, so I'd always fancied doing it. I just never thought I had anything worth writing about, and I'm still not sure about that. But mm. uh, golf, you know, you can pick a more niche field to start in. But, um, yeah, I think it was that, really. I, do, I was staggered by the way people could use language to transport you, and I wanted to do it myself, but I didn't think I could. Oh, you certainly can, like. Mm. I I um I, I see something in your writing, Richard, which I, I'm guessing at your motivation for writing, but I think this is true of some people. It's sometimes true of me, is that writing is a process through which I realise I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> this is a compliment, Richard, in case you were wondering. But <laughs> I'm waiting but, for but it. But also <laughs> importantly, it's the process by which you work it out. It, it's the the act of writing lets you yeah. sort of clarify a thought. Argue with yourself in some ways, don't yeah. you? If I'm going to put that on paper, I'd better be sure about it. I'd better explore that what I'm saying makes some sense before I put it out. In It's quite a vulnerable thing to do writing, isn't it, Richard? The sort of writing that you do. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, but I think mine, it's quite hard to judge your own stuff and some of the stuff I just don't read at all. It was quite weird editing grassroots because I needed to go through some of these essays and be pretty critical about them and chop them in places and stuff so um but uh i mine seems more meaningful to me the more vulnerable it is actually and i, I sort of 
in a way want to go further down that path and the book that i've you know is now in the second draw down rather than the bottom draw does that and it's a very sort of um personal journey really um yeah i i wish i was a better liar adrian i would love to have looked really offended at what you said but i think for me it rings true spot on i have no idea where these things are going and um and quite sometimes i read things that i've done like a year ago or whatever or i was listening to a snippet of us in february last year earlier to make sure the headphones work which they only do in the left ear funnily enough but, <laughs> or um, you've got a problem with your right ear one of the two. and <laughs> your view changes on stuff anyway over time doesn't it so there was a couple of things i said and i thought oh, i'm not sure if that's quite right actually it's um and it's like that with the you know you start off writing one thing and you end up in a different place at the end so yeah Basically, I have no idea what I'm doing. For those who don't know, Rich, we just give a quick thumbnail sketch. What is Grassroots? Is it a novel? Is it fiction? Is it, I know what it is, but tell the people what it is. Yeah, so it's a collection of um, blog posts from from Stymied. So 16 of them were uh, blog posts on their own, and they're, they're all visits to various clubs and some some of them i know really well you know there's a couple of places i've worked there there's places um that i'd never been before and so and there's two new chapters so there's 18 courses basically i go and visit and and just write about and write about the experience of being there or the golf that was played or they're, they're quite varied um and because they were standalone things you can i think you can sort of dip in and dip out and you know read one at a time or whatever but during they are uh, pretty much sequential in stopping my previous job and um taking some months off as a sabbatical and just playing lots of golf in there and then drifting through that sort of 12 month period i just i was rediscovering golf um and my love for the game that's been there 35 years but it, it really dwindled um for various reasons, but it's also rediscovering the um, love of going to the more rustic side of golf, the, the Cleve Hills and Minchinhampton Olds, the places that people just, you know, the tourists never tick off. They're not at the top of any um, rankings or anything, but they're proper um, grassroots down-to-earth golf courses, uh, loads of them with, you know, sheep on and stuff, but the, the pure game really. So it's um yeah it ended up being a it feels like a bit of a journey I've been through and you know I love playing you know I went to Muirfield at the end of it that's not in the book but uh, and just the most incredible place but I'm just as happy wonderful as Muirfield is at uh, Walkworth on the Northumberland coast or or Pennard or any of these places that most people have never heard of that's where the pure game lives for me and it's it feels. Those places feel like, um, I don't know, environmentally a bit friendlier and simpler. Yeah, they're just, um, they're kind of as simple as you can be with it still being good golf, uh, but they're, they're still so much fun to play. Um, I love them. And the funny thing about those is, you know, every time I mention somewhere that I've been, uh, someone else will chime in and say, that's great, but you need to go here. And so I'm putting miles on the camper van like you wouldn't believe because the place is like Kington. So someone read the Cleve Hill one and then I'm, you know, in the van for six hours to go to Kington. Six hours, it, 
totally worth it every inch of the journey because i found another amazing sort of rugged golf course that a few people knew about and um i i'd never heard of it because it's not in the magazines or anything mm. so i love that side of it it does feel like it might be a bottomless pit and a bottomless bucket list as well because it's just growing all the time and i assume not enough hours in the day I assume you're grinding for a score in all of these rounds and <laughs> up- uploading them on yeah, iGolf yeah, yeah. for your handicap record. And yeah, the, with, okay. is that is that what it's all about for you? Or? Before you get, yeah. no, <laughs> yeah. I, is that what is that what cards, you're doing? Is that what back this is? in the late nineties? I think. Yeah, no, I'm, I just uh, it, if I get round with the same golf ball, I've had a hell of a day. But um, yeah. You, from our previous discussion, you know that's not how I'm wired. Playing, it's just as well. It hadn't got any better. Playing matches with anyone he plays with who doesn't know they're doing it. They're in a match. match. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> just um, quickly, we before we were talking and talking about the writing stuff, I think Logue probably experiences it because it's not what he does every day. He's not working media. Yeah, we that's that. right. And Richard sounds like he's probably worked through it given he's doing more of it. When you, it seems I think, like a slight against me. It is. It is. Oh, it is. That's exactly yeah, what it is. Yeah. Okay. I think when you get started, you write stuff and you don't know if it's good enough or if it fits the brief, and that's often that feeling is the one where you've actually written your best best stuff. Mm, yeah. And when you start to write every day, like you and I do, well, you less so these days, but you particular particular subject matter, you you know the formula, you knock it out and you do it. A rap of a day's play at a tournament. A, is a, fairly, a game story, it's a, it's but a I mean, I must say, but I, I don't want to diminish that because I mean, no, I love I love writing game stories and I like to do it differently. That's one of my my preferred things. But I think, uh, given I've had a slight change and I'm writing a bit of different stuff, I get that feeling a little bit more again, where I've written something that I think is what is required and it's taken me a bit more time and whatever. And then you say, I don't know if it's any good. And that's when you get the feedback of, oh, that's exactly what, or that's better than what we thought it was going to be. Or, and it's coming soon. That's rubbish. Try again. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but you can get those. But I think that, that feeling of uncertainty is comes through in that sort of style of writing. And it's often when you get the best writing out of people mm. that they're trying to work through something as without a structure or an inbuilt thing. And I think that's brilliant. And I, you know, it, it produces really great storytelling that's not formulaic. Mm. And I think you find uh, reading a lot of Richard's blog posts and stuff, I think it's exactly that. It's what is, is an essayist, I think. Was that, is that a, yes, fair a fair description, Richard? Essayist, I yeah. Think. I always look, the word essay is French for... Oh, here we go. This uh, is always Fr- it's, it's always it's, something with... Is this essay. why you were late? It's French to <laughs> to attempt or to right. experiment. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Okay, I didn't Which know. I think is very apt, don't you think? It, it, very much. I was supporting your argument, Jimmy. It's Mexican, I think, for... Uh, Spanish for brother or something, isn't it? <laughs> is it? Don't know. I don't know. Richard, no. what Jimmy's talking about there is the comfort zone, is it not? And you really don't do anything worthwhile when you're in your comfort zone, generally speaking, unless you're a high achiever whose comfort zone is achieving highly. Yeah, that goes right through our lives, I think, doesn't it? Hmm. I mean, we're wired for, uh, what do they call it? Um, uh, oh, my mind's gone utterly blank now. Um, th- there's a word for our sort of, um, you know, million years old reactions to the unknown and danger and stuff. The lizard the lizard brain. Africa or whatever. Like the lizard brain uh, reaction. It's not a word, but. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
Ah, oh, damn, I can't remember what the word. Are. I'm sorry. You've, you've got that's all right. Well, you've got we a forgive you, Richard. With words. Not you don't work with words very yeah. often, so <laughs> we we forgive you for not being able to recall the one that you're thinking <laughs> of just at the moment. How often does that happen? I find myself at an age now much further down the track than I used to be, reaching for the thesaurus more than I used to. Is writing for you finding the right word to fit in just the right place a bit like a jigsaw puzzle or is it this needs to have this, I need to go looking for a solution, I need to go and check the solved crossword to get this seven across? Yeah. No, I do too much of that. Um, the thing I do is sometimes repeat certain words load so I have to go through the essays and look for that. What I did do editing the ones that went in grassroots was – um, spend a bit more time thinking: Is that the best word there, or is there, you know, are there different words? But um, no, thesaurus is cheating, Rod, isn't it? Yeah, it absolutely is. It's why they absolutely. built it. That's they why they Microsoft Word is one of the first things I taught Jimmy. <laughs> Mate, go for the thesaurus. It's uh, when you're on a deadline, the thesaurus is a fabulous, absolutely, a fabulous thing to have. Can I just can I just note that I looked up essay in Spanish, and it's a <laughs> slang term for comrade, pal, or friend in Spanish, oh, okay. Mexican. Uh, no, so I was on the right track. Richard, all of that's about writing, but of course anybody who writes is also a reader. What do you read? Where do you meant you touched on earlier that you sort of were a reader as a younger person? Where does the, the reading inspiration side of things come from for you? Yeah, so um well, I'm making a concerted effort to read more um golf stuff and there's loads of good stuff out there, and so I'm enjoying doing that. But um uh, what else do I read? I mean I the there's certain books I go back to a lot like read every year so um i quite like um travel literature so a book called the snow leopard peter matheson is just an incredible um writer or he was um i've read a couple of his but that's the one that really you know trekking around um the himalayas uh, on a sort of spiritual journey um uh what else um i do like fiction um so, you know, things like um, Gabriel Garcia Marquez and um, uh, what's the guy who wrote? Lou de Bernier. I love those, but I don't tend to read them very often. Um, yeah, there's one thing I ought to do more of. Is read. I have a fabulous book at the moment, which you may have noticed. I mean, it's blockbuster hit now, but, um, uh, you know, Rick Rubin, the, the record producer. Yeah. You know the American, record. yeah. That's he's well outside. Rod's he's got a book out which took him seven years. Uh, the the creative act, and it's fantastic. And I thought it'd just be about you know um, producing records, but it's an amazing. But it's like a, it feels like a spiritual text, but it's all about um, listening to your intuition and taking a time to reach decisions. And so it's for people who are in the creative arts, I guess, generally, but there's so much more in it. It's amazing, but, yeah. In fact, you should fl try and flog grassroots to someone and buy that. <laughs> I'll have a look if they've got one in the charity shop when I take yours down there. Uh, <laughs> see if I can do a straight, uh, <laughs> a straight swap. I jest, of course. Do those things, Richard, the things outside of golf that you read about, inform the way you look at and then write about golf? I think it's one of Mike Clayton's great traits is that his interests are much broader than golf, but that his outside interests inform mm. a lot of the way he talks and writes about golf. Are you the same? Yeah, yeah, and I'll pick up from 
films or not necessarily books films sometimes just walking outside or seeing some you know completely detached from golf interaction will make me think oh that's interesting i you know i get a huge amount it sounds macabre but i get a lot of them i have to go to quite a lot of funerals working in the golf industry and i find those fascinating because you find out so much about people's sort of um not secret lives, but stuff you didn't know about people that you thought you knew pretty well. Um, and, and as they're mostly golfers' funerals I go to, um, golf always comes in there. And that, I find that really interesting too, this strange old game that, you know, you never win and it's sort of it's the least fashionable thing to do on earth. And yet it's such an important part of people's lives. And some of the some of the people who's, you know, I've been lucky to go and pay respects to, um, been extraordinarily successful in all walks of life. And yet there's this sort of common thread that binds us all together and it's whacking a white ball around the field. And I, I love that. So, yeah. The, uh, and you're absolutely right with Clayton because you can see it. He'll start talking about tennis and it, he'll bring in something that's totally relevant to what's going on on you know, tour or whatever. Yeah. Golf's an infection. I need to read the game. (laughs) Indeed. Quick rabbit hole. There is, in fact, I read this amazing (laughs) story on the ABC website over here a couple of weeks ago. Somebody had sent me it. There's a guy who, for I think it's about 10,000 bucks, will turn up at your funeral and expose the family secrets that you've always wanted to expose but haven't haven't had the courage to, and he'll do that at the funeral. Like, you know, Bob had this other family over here that he was right. Oh, just crazy. It's the b- most bizarre story I think I've ever read. And this guy, does, I think, charges about 10000 bucks, and he stands up at the funeral and says who's going to get something and who's not or whatever it is that the person who's died wants exposed. Can I tell you, at your funeral, I'm going to play the unreleased Good Good tapes. <laughs> well, at least my reputation won't be able to be sullied by that. You want to go through them fairly carefully first, Jimmy, beforehand. Like, what we're talking about here is reading for entertainment. We all do lots of reading. And one of the things the internet has done has made the world more literate, I think, because people read more than they did for a period there where books were not so sort of, you know, people would talk on phones. But now we do a lot of reading. But what we're talking about here is reading for entertainment. What's that about? Is that for everyone, do you reckon? Well, yeah, obviously there's a big, huge industry of people buying books and things. Uh, I'm really intrigued by this idea of uh, reading other things and then looking at golf through the lens mm. of those other things that that book that uh, Richard's reading at the moment, I think is, is a very good example. And it reminds me of a book uh, that has been very influential for me uh, called adventures in the screen trade by William Goldman, who was the screenwriter on Butch Cassidy and the Sundance kid. And he just talks about like the, some of the challenges of working in Hollywood as a screenwriter, but it touches on uh, project management. It touches on the creative process. Um, it, it talks all about all sorts of things, just uh, things that apply to any industry. And and I, I think I originally read it and thought a lot about um, my profession, you know, as a software developer and running projects in software and creating software. Um, was it, there's so many parallels to creating a movie and. It's, Take it's an also, idea and put it on a screen in a way that can make sense to other people as well. Yeah, in both uh, pursuits, there's you know there's project management, there's a huge amount of creativity, um, there's you know a lot of relationships and and uh, just how you approach that that all consuming act of making something. 
uh, I think is uh, is is something I, I find always interesting, and any book on that subject I think is really interesting. But it's also fascinating to view golf through that lens, and uh, or or the peripheral stuff in golf, like Richard's essays. I mm. think are, um, yeah, golf is is great for producing this peripheral stuff. That's fascinating. Like you always say, the smaller the ball, the better the writing. Writing is just one of the really interesting things mm. that come out of golf. Agreed. I think discussions around sustainability and environmental issues are another interesting thing that come out of golf. And Richard um, talks about that not directly in a lot of your writing, Richard, but it's it's there. It's a it's a topic that gets hit on. In Courses sitting more comfortably in their landscape. Yeah, and that feeling. Right, we've talked yeah. about that before too, haven't we? It's it's this way, and this is something I, th- I think I'd encourage people to be mindful of if they're reading Richard's writing is. It's not looking the thing directly in the eye and talking about it. He's kind of looking at it askance and relating to the experience of what he's doing, like playing a golf course or something. But there's little peripheral uh, topics that he's looking at askance. And sometimes that's the best way to look at a thing. When, when you look at an issue and try and talk about it directly, it's less engaging sometimes. It's more engaging to, be, to have it as a peripheral activity that's that's happening around you as you're doing something else. So it's got to be relevant in some way. If you just talk about a topic like it sits over here, you talk yeah. about it and then you go and do other stuff and it's no longer relevant. If it's that's part right. of what you're doing, exactly, there's a relevance to it that, that's right. that and, comes from that. And it's something that comes through in Richard's writing is that there's a lot <coughs> of little things that you're seeing through his periphery. Mm. And I think that's really fascinating. A lot of those things, Richard, are the things that people will say they like about golf if you ask them. The people whose funerals you go to where golf has been a really important part of their life. And I think that, you're right, I find that fascinating that, well, there are two types of people in the world, aren't there? There's golfers and non-golfers. And and for those people, it's the things they will say that they've been drawn to about golf. It's their time with their friends. It's the being outside. It's the the intellectual stimulation of golf courses. It's the, the reading of what other people think about golf and opening up to that kind of thing. Those are those peripherals that Logue's talking about, are they not, that really have nothing to do with whether you should hit six yeah. iron or five iron. Yeah, absolutely right. Um, so I'm thinking of one I went to uh, last year and I didn't reveal the secret of the other family or anything like that. But, <laughs> Ten um, grand on the table for you if you yeah. wanted to, Richard. <laughs> Apparently. Yeah, no, I bottled it. So I'm still a rookie. So, um, the uh, someone stood up and did a eulogy and did a fantastic job and um, uh, talked about golf and the place of golf in the departed's life. And it was like just he was always talking about great days in good places, no, great days with good people in wonderful places. And yeah, so that's sort of what you're talking about there. Um, but also, I, there's something about the time you spend on a golf course. So like, my, um, I don't know, you, you're out in the open. There's no walls listening. You, you learn it. There's all sorts of quotes about learning about a, a person's character by playing golf with them. But also, I, I tend to talk about the weirdest things. And it's not just me. It's often the playing partners as well. But you can talk about anything on a golf course because you're out there in the open. You, you're already horribly vulnerable like you are play, writing because, you know, none of us can hit the damn thing straight every time. So it feels like a very sort of open space for connecting 
with each other and, and, you know, all the other sort of creatures that are hovering around and laughing at our efforts and stuff. There's something about that. Do you reckon? We're all indoors the whole time. Do you reckon that's, do you reckon that's particularly true for men? Oh, I hadn't thought about that. Interesting. Give it some thought. Uh, Yeah. So, well, my gut reaction would be probably I, I get the impression from the places I've worked that the girls take the game a little more seriously than most of the blokes at the sort of places I've worked. Um, so they may be a bit more focused on the game, perhaps. It's a massive generalisation. I'll get slaughtered for, I'm sure. But, um, but it, men, are, it's not an easy thing for most blokes, even now, to be open and vulnerable is it so if it gives them an opportunity to talk about stuff that you know wouldn't have been even mentioned two generations ago that's a good thing but yeah what do you reckon does that make sense yeah it, sure it does jimmy what do you reckon is golf just then? a great big outdoor men's shed i've always felt that it was and if you can, look at the demographic be. in some ways as well. for sure absolutely um i think i think probably in australia particularly private clubs are for for men who have less of an opportunity and less of a chance to be um, uh, open and, and probably honest with people because there's you know high high stress professional lives and everything like that, and they find their group who they are the ones they talk to about things. Um, I think they there's you know, having grown up around golf clubs, you can see this really tight bond between golf groups and if you come into it as a young person you think oh yeah they play golf every week but they know everything about their families and about their professions and about they're, they're the guys they often go to for you know advice on anything um it definitely i think men in golf use it as a chance to decompress but also sort out things in the rest of their life while also being active and having this mm-hmm. pursuit i think i think a lot of women and again, it's a bit of a generalisation, but uh, I'm thinking of a couple of examples of people I know where a, a male in the relationship has played golf for a long, long time and the woman has come to the game later. Then are so focused, like Richard said, so focused on golf and getting better. It's not about necessarily the social interaction as much. It's about this pursuit. Um, whereas... By the time you know you've been playing for thirty years, twenty years, you kind this of this is it. You kind of realise <laughs> you're no good, and and you and you sort of have another focus. Stop worrying um, about that. More, more like five years. Yeah, you reach your plateau yeah. after about five. But years. you don't realise it for about another twenty. Normally, yeah, yeah, you're convinced that you're going to get better. I think I think that's. But I think that's even true of like elite golf guys who play on tour who stop doing it for a while talk about missing things and everything like that, a lot of what they miss is the camaraderie. I agreed. It's not the And golf. the camaraderie with people who have this unique life like they have where they've done this sort of thing for a living that it's very hard to relate to. You know, you sit down and have a meal with someone who's played elite professional golf and talk about life and about how they've gone about things and family and everything like that. It's a completely unique right. living experience and having someone else to understand it is very difficult. Um, unless they've lived it. And so I think that's a lot of what when players go back to playing tour golf and they go and play, I think that's why you see a lot of them go and play, you know, over 50s champions to even legends tour in Australia because there's a kinship and it's literally just seeing their old mates and, you know, having that chance to talk about things. Mm. 
I don't think blokes go out on the golf course and talk about all deep and meaningful stuff all the time. No, Isn't there just the, the being in the company logo? Is there something yeah. about that? And particularly with that same group of blokes on a regular basis, which a lot of clubs try to break up and I understand why, but there's something important about that, isn't there? No, I think that speaks directly to why it's not that important what your home club is. Mm. Like people, you know, if you're, if you're a golfer, you, you know, there's this narrative that everybody loves the mud heap that they play on. But I think that's not necessarily because of the attributes of the course always. It's just because of the routine and the it's friends. The mu- it's and the mugs they play with. It's actually for the <laughs> it's, it's really? actually, yeah, yeah. It's actually kind of for the right reasons. Like unwittingly, I think a lot of golfers just find their way to the right reasons for continuing to play golf because and even the execution stuff, like they've they've got their course that they're super familiar with and they know because they've played it so many times that when they get to the 16th and they've got this shot, they've got to execute it in a certain way and they enjoy that challenge. And Mm. uh, that's a form of of enjoying golf strategy as well. Um, But you've you've arrived at it through not not thinking about how to play the hole from from the green backwards or anything like that, or of making a careful study of Alistair McKenzie. You've learned it through seven double bogeys in the previous (laughs) eighteen weeks. Exactly, you've (laughs) you've learned it through playing for years and years. But and so whether whether you're aware of it or not, your your focus for week to week golf and what keeps you coming back to golf isn't just your score. It's the look up type of things, as I like to it say. It can't be just the score. If yeah. it was, honestly, people would it'd stop. Be, it'd be depressing. But uh, the and, – and setting yourself up for disappointment. But the, uh, you know, the camaraderie, of course, uh, is part of it. And But enjoying your environment, which is part of, like, why we can – we put up with just playing the same golf course week after week, mm. as most golf club members do. Why? Why? Uh, there's something I'm always puzzled with. Was why? Why are we so satisfied with that? Why is that so satisfying for a game where the course is such an integral? A tennis yeah. court is a tennis court, but a golf course is a brand new, exciting thing every time you go to yeah. visit a new one. And yet, you're right. It is genuinely satisfying it to is. play the same course week after week. Where you speak to a non-golfer or a new golfer, they're often like, "Oh, why would you want to do that? I want to experience as many courses as I want." And you should, but it's also a very satisfying it's to sound like experience. Like Richard, if a non-golfer was sitting here listening mm. to us, what would they think and say? These are the – I wish sometimes the Clover Moores and the Nicky Gimmels of the world could sit and listen to this. These are the things that outsiders or people who don't play golf don't get about golf, isn't it? How do we help them understand it, do you think? I'm not sure you can. It's one of the things that I mean it, it does look fundamentally absurd doesn't it to the outsider and so I was listening to Adrian there and I was thinking yeah and, and we, we all you know lots of us play the same course week after week after week but you never step in this no man steps in the same river twice or whatever that quote was and and our mood is different the the wind is different the conditions of the course are different it's just there's such complexity in the game that um, and also, you know, a, a well laid out golf course has hidden depths. And you, I was writing about this this morning, actually, and you see it if you tune in on Sunday. But I was that that process of getting to know a place better and better and becoming more familiar with it. And then, you know, after years, some of the courses around here, I've been playing every year, sometimes regularly for years on end, like a couple of decades, some of them, and um, I still notice things that 
I hadn't noticed before, which is ridiculous. And I noticed things I'd forgotten. So even in that single environment of, you know, the same course, it's never the same course anyway. But I think that the wider point is it's, it's the connection with just the landscape and the great outdoors that we are starved of these days and the people around us. And that's what comes across it. I keep going back to the funerals. But the more I think about it, the more I learn about golf there and how important it is in these people's lives. So it must seem to the non-golfers present at each um, service like a total anom- anomaly you know some some persons you know gone down this road and done this and there's a logical path to their life of success and you know um whatever they've achieved or done in their life and then there's this thing that they would sneak off to do every sunday morning go and play golf it's just um yeah mm-hmm. i'm not sure we're going to win trying to explain it to the non-golfer rod <laughs> Sadly, I, I suspect you're right, Jimmy. We work in a, and I've worked most of my life as you in a, an industry where we don't talk about virtually any of this stuff. This isn't the business of golf, is it? It's kind of what ultimately drives the business of golf. But the things we're talking about here are not the things that the business of golf talks about, is it? It's a really interesting disconnect in some ways. Yeah, I think that's probably true. Um, I think those kind of a bit more. Uh, wider thoughts on golf don't necessarily get explored, but they all fall into kind of the ethos of it as well. The unspoken understanding that we all well, have, perhaps. Well, you, one of the reasons everyone plays golf and is, you know, never – there's no such thing as perfect mm. in golf. You can't you can't perfect this game. Get Huggy going on the flawless round. Exactly right. <laughs> uh, which is, you know, I, I, and I completely understand. I absolutely. fall right into line with that yeah, little absolutely. bugbear of Huggies, but – in terms of like to go back to Logue talking about you go and play the same golf course, you're never going to figure it out. Mm. You play there three times a week. You are never going to figure it out. We, we play Marrickville from time to time. It I, I, I always occurs to me when we're playing Marrickville, very humble public course in Sydney or sem- semi-private. Would it be semi-private? <laughs> Fabulous <laughs> example of the It's the as genre. public as public gets. <laughs> yeah. Very public, but they've got members. But uh, the experience, especially – if you play Marrickville a thousand times yeah. and you play New South Wales Golf Club a thousand times, mm-hmm. I think it gets to the point where the experience of playing Marrickville is sort of 99% the same as the experience of playing mm. New South Wales mm. because it's it's just golf. Yeah. You know? You're know, you just turning up and you're looking down at the ball and hitting it and there's a huge amount of subtlety even in a place as banal in places as Marrickville is. Yeah. There's enormous subtlety and you've still got to play all sorts of shots and there's still all sorts of conditions to deal with and there's much worse lies to deal with. Yeah. Mm. Um, I just think in the end, the experience of having played golf is 99% the same. Yeah. When you repeat enough. Yeah. Yeah. You go, there's places I've played a thousand, thousands of times and I go back there and I still look at things and I've, I've not worked out that exactly. When you start to, Having played at a decent level, when you're younger and you start to improve, you copy a lot of what you see and you kind of give an advice. So when you start to get longer off the tee as a kid, you start to be taught about you know clubbing down certain holes. You get to a hole. I remember the first time being told by a, a PJ member playing and saying, well, you should not hit that shot here. You should hit this shot. Then just assuming it was every single time. I don't hit driver here because I hit it long enough that it reaches this hazard. Well, that's not the case. 
the case is that it's dependent on wind conditions. It's dependent on tee placement. Yeah, when you don't into the wind, you yeah, might. it's dependent on, on on pin position. And if I want to have a go at it, and I can actually hit more club and do that. State of the match. Yeah, and so learning that, and then learning that you know, there's no way of doing this the same every time, is thrilling. And that's kind of when you get to that level. That's the decision making, and I think that's the same for every single club member who shows up. And you know, you, you go and play a guy you know, with a with a member who's been a member for thirty years, and they get to a par three, and they just grab five iron out of their bag because they hit it every single time. But they're still trying to work it out in their own way, and it's still what ticks you around and everything like that. And to Logue's point, I I agree completely. And, and Richard mentioned earlier of going playing places that people haven't heard of and all this sort of stuff. That's the golf that I still enjoy. I don't love playing competition golf and scorecard golf anymore. It's just not – doesn't get me going. But um, going and playing somewhere I've never been before or going and playing somewhere that, like Marrickville, is completely different. You know, going and you, – you hit shots there that you won't hit anywhere else because of – you know, there's not that that's not that maintenance budget, and you'll end up in some lies that just are funky, and they're the fun shots to hit. That's all both true and not true, isn't it, Richard? Everything both of these two have just said, because for all of that, there's always a buzz of excitement when you go to a play a golf course that you've heard or read about and wanted to play for ages, and then you want to go there, which doesn't really fit with the 99% of it's the same in some ways, does it? Which is very golf, isn't it? It's both true mm-hmm. and simultaneously completely mm-hmm. untrue. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I like that sort of thing as well. There's uh you know, we're very binary and or dualistic in our thinking, aren't we? But the, the, the everything you've said there is spot on. I, I've so I've got a couple I'm gonna do press week soon, about three weeks time, and I was just so excited about it because it's been on the bucket list for ages. And I know I'll love it because the people who I sort of chime with in golfing terms absolutely adore the place and it's going to be great but uh, it, we sort of play the game against ourselves regardless of where we are it's really thrilling going to a new place but then that's sort of about hope isn't it i think and we flirt with these places these golf courses when we first go to see them it's like a you know you're sort of having a look around and seeing if you like the place and then you go again and you sort of slowly develop a relationship with a place and that process fascinates me. Um, but um, I, I still get that sort of sense of um, foolish hope playing the place that I've played 200 times because, you know, I might not be able to hit the tee shot on 16, but I still stand there and put the tee in the ground. I just cannot wait to hit the shot. And uh, I can't, you know, I probably, I'm probably exactly the same. I make the same mistakes like pulling the five iron just out of force of habit. Golf, you know, if we were rational creatures on the golf course, we wouldn't have the hope when we're standing over, a, you know, an appealing-looking drive or a gorgeous, like, drop shot par three or whatever. We wouldn't have the hope. We'd have the realistic expectation that we're going to duff it in the water or shank it. But, um, yeah, we managed to stay positive until we've hit it. Until you've hit it. That's exactly That's when, when all the evidence is now so stacked against you, you can no longer even pretend to have yeah. hope. The result is in. The verdict has been made. Well, I think it might have been Billy Connolly who plays into stereotypes, and that's dangerous stuff in this day and age, but I think it was Billy Connolly who suggested that had Germans invented golf, it would be a very different game. You'd pick up the ball here, run to their throw it in the hole, and whoever did it the quickest would win. 
That would be the sensible way to do golf. But you're right. This idea that you have all these silly sticks and and that kind of thing is uh, why are you pointing at me like that? You think I'm going to get it cancelled now? No, 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 no. We're just we're just enjoying what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. I do not trust either of you in I any would, way, shape, or form. I'll have I that. I'll have that assessed from outside before we uh, before we put it to uh, before we put. I, it to I, you. I think exactly. Right. The, there is an absurd proposition. Golf in yeah. every way imaginable. Uh, absurd to to expand on like that. The person who grabs their five on whatever, I've run a driving range in the past and these guys would show up the same day every week at the same time, buy the same size bucket of balls, go and do exactly the same thing. And they, ne- they would never get any they're, better. They're weekly exercise. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They try Ted Sterling. You say, he's not practicing, he's exercising. He's exercising. But there was this determination because there's all this <coughs> difference of how you can hit different golf shots and all that sort of stuff that they were going to get better or they were just doing it for exercise. It was just a part of their golf experience. And it fascinates me. You know, I used to see guys on the practice fairway. There's people I know who really well golf pros and good players who stop playing the game but still practice relentlessly. Mm. And That makes no sense at all, it does ma- it? it, it, it no sense. In any other sport, that's imagine that someone who played tennis their whole life and went, I'm done playing tennis but I still like the mechanics and just every day went and hit tennis balls against the wall with a tennis racket. Ben Hogan. Yeah, you'd think they were mad. Some sort of Pavlovian. It's like a Pavlovian response, isn't it? Yeah. Those tennis What's the, uh, golf. The, there's a Hogan quote on there. Who was talking about Hogan? Uh, it was Jeff Ogilvie on, on one of the um, American podcasts. He was talking about Hogan. He said uh, he just, he, he couldn't, he wasn't really interested in winning tournaments or whatever, although he won plenty of them. He just wanted to get up each morning and hit great golf shots. It didn't matter whether they were on the course or the range. He just loved hitting great golf shots. They weren't on the putting green. Oh, that's oh, 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 you're going to get cancelled for sure. <laughs> Can't even defend himself. Yeah, that's, that's exactly. I think Logue makes a good point. He was more than vocal of putting <laughs> not being part Thought of the game. They shouldn't count for a full shot, putt. Exactly. Uh, that's right. Half a shot. Time. Ultimately, Richard. I hope you're not going to put us out of business here. We do a podcast called The Thing About Golf. Are we ever going to answer that question, do you reckon? Kind of what you're trying to do, isn't it? Uh, yeah. Uh, what's the, uh, I just love that Alistair Cook quote. They've been playing golf for 800 years and no one's satisfactory said why. We're not about to blow uh, that here tonight, I don't think. Oh, or. Sorry, it's morning for you guys. It's morning mm-hmm. for us. Yeah, that's why there was a coffee no, incident to start yeah. the yeah, yeah, to start no, the, the thing about golf, and it, it's different for every person yeah. that you interview on there, and it's different, you know, at every funeral I attend. It's, um, you know, it means different stuff to us, but there's something in it. There's some sort of glue in it that makes it a community and and um, keeps us sane. I think keeps us outdoors in the fresh air, challenging ourselves and. And uh, being humble, I think you got no choice, have you? No. Golf, you have to have patience and humility, otherwise you, you'll jump off something high. <laughs> it'll, it'll dish it out to you, won't it? Uh, just to finish up, Rich, I was thinking when we were talking there. There's a lot of people who tell you they've got no interest in golf course architecture, but they have a favourite hole, so they don't realise they've got an interest in golf course architecture, even though they do. You can't have a favourite hole unless you've got some interest in the design of it. Do you think golfers are similar in the stuff that we're talking about? Then a lot of people might play the game without ever thinking about this stuff, but that it's kind of the reason that they keep coming back. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. 
Yeah, so they haven't analysed it or worked out what it is, but all of this stuff's working almost subconsciously. Yeah, I think that's probably true. Mm. There's very few people I play golf with where we don't have conversations about. I don't mean many people don't love golf, though. I don't know. Um, How many people are indifferent? You wouldn't play golf just. No, no, you're either in or out, aren't you? I think. Yeah. And while people, maybe some people don't talk in or analyse as you know endlessly as I do, what what this try to analyse what this game means to me, um, we all have our own reasons for it. And uh, yeah, I find that fascinating. Other people's motivation, people who've are considering giving up the game, I see quite a lot of that working in clubs, and it's fascinating watching that because it's just been such a part of them being a bad golfer for fifty years. They cannot bear to give the game up. And I know a few who've drifted away from the game, and I was sort of on the cusp of that, and then come back to it and and realised, you know, they, they can't live without it. I, yeah. I can't think of many people in their group that they go to a golf course each week have ever said to any of their playing partners, hey, why do you play golf? Oh, God, no, never. Never comes up. And if you ask most golfers, I don't know. Mm. But there's a reason, you, and you probably so, find it what we were talking about earlier with, you know, stuff outside of golf. Mm. That if you were having a conversation about something, you'd you'd be able to pin it down probably in a conversation with most people. But why do you play golf? You know, and you, you'd get any sort of thing. You, if you ask Clates, why do you play golf? Well, I just always have. It's part. Of, it becomes a part. It of becomes your a part. Identity, and, and that's from yeah. a tour professional to a once a week twenty seven marker who you know, has no idea or says they have no idea about golf architecture or anything like that. It's, it's one of those things. You are what you do. Yeah. And if you play golf, you're a golfer. Yeah. Yeah. And so it becomes a part of your identity. Yeah. It was Kari Webb that said on the thing about golf. Her response to that question was, you know, what's the thing about golf? She just, I think she sort of went, it's just always been a part of my life. Mm. And I think that would make sense to it, which is not an answer in any way, shape or form. Yeah. It's just a hands up. I've got no idea, but it's always been a part of my life. Yeah, and that's where it's, I think, unique amongst other sports of how it just infiltrates into your psyche is just, I'm a golfer. So I interact with golf, however that may be, um, because there is so many different ways to interact with it. There's no no less pleasure probably coming for the guy who hits the five iron at the same time every week on the driving range as the guy who Mm -hmm. travels the world trying to tick off the world's top 100 golf courses. Absolutely. They're getting the same thing out of the game that they want. It's another one of those things. I think the experience of doing it is probably, you know, 90% the same. That's very interesting. I'm going to chew on that. And the the experience of it is for a new person is as enjoyable as that person who's going around. I think for new people, I'll get your thoughts on this, Richard. for people new to the game, there is so many levels and layers to it, it's almost overwhelming in some ways, and it's only when you've been at it for a long time that you can start to think about it in the ways that we're sort of talking about today. This would be a very confronting conversation, I think, for a newcomer to golf who's, and we all do, start as the look-downers. How do I get this ball to go in the air somewhat the same distance as it did last time with this club? You've got to get that kind of out of the way before you can really start to appreciate the rest of it. Yeah. 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 And there's plenty of barriers, aren't there? We all know what they are in in certain places. But I'm encouraged as there's people and before, was it before? No, it wasn't before. It was before we started talking. You were talking about the Uganda project. And there's another thing that my local club are sending clubs out to another club in Uganda for the kids to start playing with. 
and uh, that that made me think of that. I went to a local community place on the outskirts of London, Hanslow Golf Park, recently. And, uh, you know, it's a driving range and it's got the modern tech there and it's got foot golf at the back and the adventure golf. It's sort of a, you know, kid's place um, to learn golf. And we went there and just had a, a gorgeous afternoon there. But I hit balls left-handed and uh, I'm right-handed. I've never hit balls left-handed. So you know, I was just, you know, dribbling off the range. And then I whacked one and uh, it came right off the middle of the club and i was like oh, it was 35 <laughs> years ago i first did that i think that's the thing isn't it that's the glue i'm now hooked on Everything the game twice you'll, you'll be macro yeah. grady yeah that's right i'm addicted yeah. right-handed and left-handed we'll finish up richard i want to leave with this idea is that i was just thinking about that when you were talking about you know sending clubs to the kids in africa and uganda something a bit evangelical about that isn't there almost religious what if we're wrong what if golf isn't as good as we think it is and the non-golfers have got it right? Yeah, well, and all these kids in Uganda take up the game and are tortured by the terrible addiction. <laughs> what could we have achieved if we yeah. hadn't spent so much time on a golf course? Think of the stuff we could have oh, achieved in our God. Or talking about it, thinking about it, the energy. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have to spend time with you two. All the funerals Richard Ooh. could have gone to, actually. You're going to write, start writing essays about the funeral. Forget, a, forget about writing essays. I want you to start recording them. There's a podcast in that. Golf yeah. funerals. Funerals. Ooh. Golf funerals. Great yeah. golf eulogies. A book. A book. A That'd podcast a series. Book. I think eulogies would need the delivery. I think the audio would be better. Yeah. And most of them are recorded these days because most funerals are broadcast since mm. COVID. They put them on the internet. We'll talk about that, Richard. Next funeral you go to, we might see if we can get permission yeah. to to get episode one up and running. Well, yeah. Four funerals in a round. Maybe as frequently as... Uh, <laughs> That's a stretch. Four birdies in a funeral. <laughs> four birdies. <laughs> <laughs> okay. yeah. That's a note to go out. I made four birdies. That's it. I'm done. I'm checking out. It's never getting any better than that. <laughs> That's fantastic stuff. Well done. Richard, your writing is a gift to those of us who enjoy reading it. And any of our listeners who haven't read your stuff, I encourage them to go and find it. Where can they find your Substack, and where can they buy your book, Grassroots? Oh, I should have. Uh, oh, yeah, you really should have had this information sitting in front of you, ready to go. This is how book yeah, interviews so, work. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, you know, I'm new to this. Um, so the blog is pitchmarks.substack.com, and the um, book where well, you can find details there, but it's. Um, uh, <laughs> I've got a copy if anyone wants to buy it secondhand. It's. it's <laughs> Let's just put it on the listeners as a little challenge to find yeah. it. Yeah, themselves. that's right. Do you want to buy the book? Go find it. Go find yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. Earn it. Yeah. Yeah. You oh, can absolutely. send me the link, Richard. I will put it in the show notes along with all of the other links. Oh, you're, you're a marvel. That, that Thank you. Going there. And of course, there'll be a copy available at the charity shop at Crow's Nest in the next couple of days. No, I'm only kidding. Uh, is, it, been... is it amongst your boxes of Wi-Fi routers on your bookshelf? No, it's actually at home. Oh. It's a, it's a, it's not a work thing. It's a leisure project reading Richard's book. Okay. If it can't, once it's here, it's a work thing that I'll go to and look for I didn't, inspiration. I didn't, for you made that sound dirty. I didn't know you yeah. partook in leisure. Yeah. I'm at home sometimes, so I call that leisure. Okay. And when I'm here, it's work. So there. Richard, it's been fantastic to have you aboard again, mate. We really enjoyed it. And congratulations on what has been a fabulous journey. I think we've all benefited, those of us who've been following. I think Thank we've you. all benefited from uh, from any of your stuff. So thanks for that. And I'm sure we'll have you back at some stage. But thanks for today, mate. Lovely. Thank you. Cheers, guys. Bogue. Thank you. Thank you. Bit of what? French, bit of philosophy. Yeah. Bit of, yeah. 
It was all nice. Very logue. Thank you. I feel. I guess. Jimmy, <laughs> Jimmy good to have you aboard today, mate. Thank you very much. Not very me, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, we don't know what you are anymore. You've got no identity. That's true. You're a mercenary. For hire. So, yeah, gun for yeah. hire. You'll be whatever people want that's you to exactly be. That's exactly right. We'll yeah. work yeah, for it. money. <laughs> yeah. That's it for episode 157. We'll be back to do it all again next week here on the Good Good Golf Podcast.